All right, let's turn back to Ephesians. Ephesians and chapter 2. Today, we are finishing that first paragraph from verse 1 to verse 10. So I will again read the whole of it, and then from there we'll go on to expound the 10th verse with uh, uh, the title of my sermon being, We Are God's Workmanship. We Are God's Workmanship. Beginning with verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, before I continue, there's something that's happening in this entire section that might not be easily discerned, and so I want to mention it now, and then I think you will notice it as we go on. And it is how the Apostle Paul keeps changing from the second person, which is you, to the first person plural, which is we or us. He just keeps going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth in quite an amazing way. So notice verse 1 was in the second person. And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Okay, so just don't want you to miss it as we continue. Uh, we are now in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Okay? So that's the first person plural. But notice, by grace you have been saved. Okay? So it's second person plural there. And raised us up. We've gone right back into the first person. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. So it's gone back into the second person plural. Through faith. And this not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then in our text, he comes back to the first person. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. Now, the main reason why I have drawn your attention that way is because there are people who tend to think 
that the Apostle Paul, when he's speaking about you, he is referring to the Gentiles, and when he's speaking about us, he's referring to the Jews. Now, obviously, that would be like a monkey up a tree, jumping from branch to branch, if that was the case. I mean, Paul is simply writing, and every so often, he is trying to, as it were, knock the individuals that he's speaking to on the head. And that's when he often goes into the you, you, so that they can appreciate that it is by the grace of God that they have come out. But otherwise, it, he includes himself as the beneficiaries of this grace. So it's not Jew versus Gentile at this point. It's just basically, collectively, the people of God. Having said that, welcome to uh, the messages again on celebrating the unsearchable riches of Christ. And I'm really hoping that as we wrap up this paragraph, there will be a genuine sense of celebration if you are sitting here and you are truly a child of God. Let's remember that essentially the section that we are in, Paul is drawing our attention to the power of God that is in our souls as a people of God that's taking us from that state of death and taking us all the way to glory. That he hasn't left it to us and just making an external appeal to us that we may be the people that God wants us to be. It's much more than that. Yes, there is an appeal, but there is a real power of God that is in the soul of every believer. He began with the example of Christ, and then he's moved on to speak about how we were dead in trespass and sins and how God, out of love and mercy and kindness and grace and, and so on, how he has uh, infused life in us, he's made us alive, he's raised us up, he's seated us at the right-hand side of uh, God himself, seated us with Christ in heaven. And last week, we saw his conclusion, as I said, hitting them right between the eyes in verse 9, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Really driving it home. And yet, in our text, he is doing it one more time. And this time, he's, he's taking, as it were, two steps backwards and saying, so, what you are as believers is this. You are God's workmanship. That's what you are. You are God's workmanship. In fact, the way our English version is written hides what Paul is seeking to say. Because the way it is in the Greek is that it actually begins with his workmanship, you are. So the emphasis is on God. God's workmanship, you are. 
You are his work of art. You are his masterpiece. This is what he has produced. This is what he himself is producing. God is doing something here. It's not so much you doing. It's God who is doing it. And he is going to, as it were, put you up on this shelf, on a pedestal, that everybody might look and go, wow! The whole of creation will be going, wow! Look at what God has done. There's only one other place in the whole New Testament where this word workmanship is used, and it's in Romans 1. And as we turn there, you will notice that in actual fact, uh, it's not the word workman that is used there, not even masterpiece, not even a work of art. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Chapter 1 and verse 20. Chapter 1 and verse 20. This is what it says there. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And then the phrase, in the things that have been made. That phrase, made there, is exactly the same word that we are seeing in our text. And when you realize that, and you see it in Romans 1 verse 20, it makes sense. Because this is what he's saying in Romans 1 20. His invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature can be seen through what he has made. In other words, when we look at creation, we marvel. We say to ourselves, what a great God this is. He didn't just throw things together in some kind of haphazard, muddled way. He has given us such an intricate, complex, well-balanced creation and, and universe that whenever we begin to peep into it, we always stand back and go, wow. Well, that's in creation. And what Paul is now telling us in Ephesians is that there's supposed to be the same effect in recreation, in the new creation, that we should be doing exactly the same, standing back and going, wow. Well, what is it that he is saying about this new creation. Well, first of all, as we've already said, he begins by this emphasis that this is his workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece. But the point there is that it is an actual creation of God himself. Let's go back to our text. For we are his workmanship. We are something he has made. Now, just in case we, 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 we are thinking of 
some kind of role that we ourselves have played, he says, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Brethren, we are an actual creation. We, we, we didn't just listen to a sermon and then make some kind of decision. That you know what? I think it's a good idea. Let, let, let me begin to live like that, lest I go and perish in hell. In the moment of our becoming Christians, God actually recreated. We are a new creation. Remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians in Second uh, Corinthians and chapter 5. It's one of those verses that new believers need to memorize so that it sinks in terms of what has actually happened to them. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. I begin reading from verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. In other words, you know, a worldly thinking about them. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We have now come to know the truth from heaven's perspective. And what is that truth? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And that's the reason why Paul is using this word workmanship. It's simply another way of bringing out this fact that it's God who has been there and he has been working with his own hands, as it were, in order to make something new. Now, as with all creation, whatever aspect of creation you may be thinking about, the thing created does not participate in the creation. The creator acts according to his own will. He acts completely sovereignly. Completely sovereignly. He acts as he pleases. And the thing that is created never asks the question to the creator, hey, why are you making me like this? Never. It is simply a product of the hands of the creator. And that's really what the Apostle Paul is bringing out here in our text. Created in Christ Jesus for every good work. So, yes, our lives will show that God has worked in us. And it will show that God has worked in us by the fruit that comes out of our lives. And what is the fruit that comes out of our lives? Paul is calling it here good works. Good works. Good works don't save us. And so people, when you ask individuals what makes you think you're a Christian or if you're about to enter heaven and God says, why should I allow you in? And they start saying, well, you know, I wasn't that bad. You know, I lived a good life and so on. As though Good works earn them a place in heaven. That's wrong. 
There's only one basis by which we come into heaven. Recreated in Christ Jesus. But good works are the purpose for our creation. It is what we are recreated for. Look at our text again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. For good works. So in that sense, good works are crucial because they show that God has worked in our lives. The recreation makes us different from what we were before. And the difference is not now simply words that we speak. It is a life that is now living out of genuine love for God, genuine love for God's world, genuine love for God's world and God's people. Such a life is, has been transformed by God. And so when you read, especially the writings of Paul, you can't miss how again and again he, he is praying that there will be more and more of this evidence in the lives of God's people. The evidence of good works. Fruit of love. Let me quickly take you through a number. And because I've got about four of them, we will be running through. Galatians and chapter 5 and verse 6. Galatians 5 and verse 6. This is what Paul is saying there. And I'm more concerned there about the, this faith working through love. So it's just the page before. Or two pages depending on how small your Bible is. Uh, that's where Galatians 5 is. And it says there, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, religious rituals at the end of the day don't mean anything whatsoever. You can be baptized and still go to hell. You can be circumcised and still go to hell. He would have been saying to the Jewish believers. But here it is. But only faith working through love. Faith that is producing fruit. What fruit? The fruit of love. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is a little more indirect. 2 Corinthians and chapter 9. This is what it says there. 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you. For what purpose? Listen to this. So that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, the, the passage that we're looking at here, the entire passage, is about financial giving. 
that there was a famine in Judea and Paul was sending brethren to come to the churches in the province of Achaia in order for them to uh, collect some offering that they can use to go and support the famished brethren over in Judea. And what he is saying there is that when they come, I am praying that they will not be disappointed. I am praying that they will receive so much from your hands that they will even find it difficult to convey it over to Judea. Because God who has already blessed you, I am praying to enable you to abound in every good work. That you will dig deep in your pockets. That love will make you do what Christians ought to do. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. The main thing I want you to notice out of all this is this aspect of good works. Good works. Good works. Colossians chapter 1. And this time um, the Apostle Paul is again praying. And... Um, Verse 10. I begin from verse 9. And so from the day we heard, Colossians 1, um, so Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, okay? Colossians chapter 1. And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So why are we praying that you might know God's will? Why? Well, here it is. Verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Bearing fruit in every good work. And therefore, you, your, your knowledge is enabling you to be fruitful. One more passage, and uh, I'll reserve the others until the end of my sermon, or towards the end of my sermon. Um, Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians, chapter 2. Second Thessalonians and chapter 2. Right at the end of the chapter, verse 16 and 17. Again, Paul is praying. Paul is praying. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In every good work and word. This is our prayer. That as you are experiencing the grace of God, it is pouring out a life that is abundant with good works. Brethren, that's why God has produced this new creation. This, this work of art, this, this masterpiece. It is not simply to escape hell smelling smoke and arrive in heaven. 
ati mapskin kwana it is that while you are living your life is fruitful it's a life of love a life that is abounding with good works so it's not waiting until we get to heaven it's happening now and that's why god has separated the people for himself separated people for himself there's something drastically wrong with a person who claims to be a christian and and he's just content with the fact that as far as he knows he hasn't killed anybody he he hasn't stolen anybody's money he he he, he has not taken away somebody's wife or husband and uh, no it's not simply that we should not be having a negative life it is that our lives must must be counting in other people's lives that our lives must be bringing glory to god that that's our passion that that's what we we want to 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 live for and in fact to even die for that's the way it should be that god might be glorified in our lives the apostle paul if we go back to our text makes a a a statement that sounds a little awkward as he's talking about these good works. And he's saying that the good works that we perform as Christians were prepared before the world began. They were prepared before the world began. Let's look at our text. It says there, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand. Now, Paul is not saying that we were prepared beforehand. He's already said that in chapter 1, when he was dealing with election, that we were chosen from before the world began. In fact, even in Romans 9, this is what he speaks about. The, the vessels of grace chosen before the world began. Let's quickly peep at Romans 9 and uh, verse 23. Romans 9 and verse 23. It's a matter we already handled, but it's always worth getting back to. Uh, I begin with him from verse 22. He's dealing with the whole question of election here. And, and, you know, those who are going to hell saying, hey, but why is he blaming us when he didn't choose us, he chose others, and so on. So he's saying in verse 22, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his, known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And then he says, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, again, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. He's sort of simply saying, 
So what? Because ultimately, God has chosen those whom he will have mercy on from before the foundation of the world. But in this text, it's not talking about the people themselves who were prepared beforehand. It's the good works. Let's listen to this again. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Which God prepared beforehand. The good works were pre themselves prepared beforehand, and they would be realized, realized through Jesus Christ in time. The best way to picture this is um, the way in which a, an architect and a civil engineer work together. A civil engineer doesn't just look at a field and say, okay, I think I'm going to put up a, a two-story building here, and then I'm going to put up a five-story building here, and then I think I'll, I'll put a swimming pool here. Uh, yeah, I think that's what I'm going to do. And then he just begins digging. It doesn't happen that way. First of all, an architect does the drawings, a master plan for the entire area, where different buildings and facilities and swimming pools and so on, driveways are going to be the parks and so forth. He, he does all that. And having finished it, even going perhaps as far as detailed drawings, the doors, the windows, the roof, all the details, he then hands it over to the engineer. The engineer then gets onto site and he begins to work according to that plan. According to that plan. And in the process, we all stand amazed when everything is done and we say, yeah, you know, this is a, a masterpiece. The individuals who are working, the artisans, are simply following the promptings of the engineer. That's what they need. They're just following the promptings of the engineer. It's the engineer who has his eyes on the master plan. When the artisans are working, I like the way they put it, especially at that period when they're now taking long, and they say, but boss, teach them a review. If you've never heard of reviews, you haven't built yet. They, they take forever to just, you know, just make sure if all the corners are just right and so on. The point is, somebody else is the one who is ensuring that now we can move on because we are satisfying the master plan. So here, what we are being told then is that as our lives are continuing, especially as God's people here, because it's concentrating on God's people, and we are doing the good works, faith working through love, actually what we are 
carrying out was already ordained by God in eternity past. Already. It's in the master plan. That's the architect. What about the engineer? Is it us? Are we the engineers looking? No. It's actually the Holy Spirit. It's, it's God himself. But he's now enabling us. He's now energizing us so that we respond to the actual needs that are in the world and consequently we are carrying out that master plan of God. And if I was to try and prove it to you, I will go to the book that we skipped between Ephesians and Colossians. Let's quickly go to Philippians 2. Philippians 2 and uh, verse 13. Philippians 2 verse 13. I'll begin with verse 12. Philippians 2 verse 13. But I'll begin with verse 12. And this is what the Bible says there. Remember the context. The context is where Paul is saying to the Philippian brethren that they must be concerned for one another. That they should not put themselves first, but they should consider others better than themselves. And then he uses the example of Jesus Christ who came into the world, fulfilled that great architectural plan and saved us from sin so that in the end we will all glorify God. Okay, so all that is between verse 1 and verse 11. Then he's now applying it. Therefore, verse 12, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there is the good work. So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, but notice verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. There is a synergy there in that you are not sort of just sitting back, letting go and letting God. No, you are working out your salvation with fear and trembling. There's energy, there's purposefulness, there is intentionality, there is energy that is driving you. But he's saying that's only one side of the, of the coin. Actually, something else is happening inside you. God is working. God is working both to make you will and to make you do his good pleasure. And so this is really what the Apostle Paul is speaking about in this text. That the good works originate from God. God has worked out the master plan of history. And he uses us to actually carry out his will in due season. As his people, there is a real 
power, brethren, that is at work in God's children. A very real power that enables them to live for God. To live for God. To be willing to even sacrifice for God. To even die for God. That a genuine heart of love may bear fruit in this world for God's glory. That's what Paul is referring to here. And then he ends by saying that therefore, as believers, having been so designed to do this, we must now deliberately make it our way of life. Make it our way of life. Let's go back to our text. And I'm hoping by now that the text is making a lot of sense. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, so we are simply carrying them out, and then he says that we should walk in them. That we should walk in them. The phrase walking refers to a way of life, a, a manner of life. It is not incidental. It's not because there was some powerful sermon that was preached that knocked you out of your socks, and therefore for the next seven days, you are very generous and loving. And then a week later, you recover. You say, what was I doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And then you get back to your old life. Until you hear another hailstorm and hellfire kind of sermon. And no, no, no. It becomes your way of life. The, the, the people, especially the unbelievers who are around you, there is one thing they can say about you. You are truly loving. You are a person who, whose life is about others and their well-being. And not so much that they can praise you. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's because you are a worshiper of God. And even your brothers and sisters in the Lord, they cannot miss that you, you are a genuine servant of the Lord. You want to bless them with, the, with your life. It's your way of life. Now, this verse 1 to verse 10 is actually uh, in a bracket. It's in a bracket. Um, it begins with walking and it ends with walking. So notice the way it begins there. Verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So you were walking in death. Now you are walking in life. How were you walking in death? Well, it was in sins. It was in trespasses. It was following the course of this world. It was following the prince of the power of the air. It was following your own fallen instincts. 
carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's the way you were previously. As you were walking, it was a life of sin. But now you are walking. What kind of life is there? It's a life of good works. Something has happened in between. You've gone from one extreme to another. Previously, you were with a lord called, called the devil. He was your lord. He was your master. He would say, slave, saw to the bar. And off you went. To sexual immorality, off you went. To theft, off you went. You, you were a slave to him. But now, you are a slave to another. Someone else is your master. Someone else has, has written out your blueprint. Someone else is, is working inside you. Someone else. God. You've gone from one master to another master. And what a difference it is. That's the journey the Apostle Paul has been making in this text. And what he is saying is this. Grace has taken you from one to the other. Grace alone has taken you from that extreme to this. Grace, grace, grace. And that's one reason why. When the Apostle Paul was writing to the pastors, Timothy and Titus, again and again, he was saying, don't compromise on this. Christians must live good lives. Don't compromise. They must produce good works. Don't compromise on this. Insist on it. Because that's true Christianity. That's true Christianity. Let's quickly look at those verses and then I must hurry on to close. First Timothy and then Titus. First Timothy and then Titus. So First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. First Timothy 2 and verse 10. How should Christian women be noticed in the world? How? Through glittering jewelry? Through 10,000 colors in their dressing? Listen to this. I begin from verse 8, although my interest is in verse 10. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire 
but with what is proper for women who profess godliness. And what is that? With good works. Timothy, you are a pastor of this church in Ephesus now. Say to the women of your church, the way you are to distinguish yourselves from all the other women in the community is through lives of good works. Chapter 5. Chapter 5. And verse 10. I begin from verse 9. Speaking about the women that got converted earlier in life and they've continued through the years, gotten married in the church and in the process perhaps even become widows on the opposite end. What is it that they will be known for? Listen to verse 9. Let a widow be enrolled if she's not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and here it is, and having a reputation for good works. What good works? Listen, he gives a sample there. If she has brought up her children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. What should you do, deacons? Put her on the benevolent fund that she's getting an allowance all the way until she dies. She has earned it through a life of fruitfulness, a life of hard work. So you're not just saying, no, but look, we, people look at us very badly. You know, she's in need, that one. You know, let's, let's just do something. Ah! What did she do to prove that she's truly a child of God? What? Woman pew? No! A life of deliberate, intentional, purposeful service to God. Verse 25. Still in the same text. This is now talking in terms of people who you are to bring into the eldership. You are not too sure to begin with. Paul says, don't hurry. Don't hurry. Just, just look. What's going to happen with that life is it's going to go one way or the other. Either hidden sin will finally pop out or good works will pop out. People will start talking to you about the good in that person's life. And it is that last part that it says in verse 25. So also, good works are conspicuous. And even those that are not, cannot remain hidden. It's a matter of time. Good works will show. Chapter 6, this time is talking about what Timothy should say to those who are wealthy in the church. 6 verse 18, to those who are wealthy. Um, I don't think I have reached the point of obeying um, what he says here. Um, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, that is proud, 
not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Again, there it is, saying, use your wealth for the glory of God and for the good of his people. Titus and chapter 2. I've overshot my usual time, but let's quickly go through these two, three verses. Titus chapter 2, verse 7. This is now pointing the gun back at myself as a preacher. <laughs> Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. A model of good works. You yourself as a pastor, those who are around you should see that your life is characterized by love. Love for those who are around you. And then in your teaching, show integrity and so on. And hence, verse 14, he's able to speak about what Jesus did. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's, remember, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. But it doesn't end there. It ends in chapter 2, verse 10. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Have you seen that? So it's from that extreme to the opposite. That's what Jesus wanted to achieve in saving his people from their sin. Not leaving us in the middle somewhere where we are just lukewarm and hoping we'll finally end up in heaven. But on the opposite, zealous, passionate, energetic for good works. And then lastly, chapter 3 and verse 8. This is now really making things tough. Chapter 3 and verse 8. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things. Insist on these, Titus. So that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. That's how their week should be spent. In a life of love. A life of investing into lives. A life of bringing praises up to God because people are saying, I'm grateful that he lived, that she lives. I'm grateful because I don't know where my life would have been if it wasn't for these individuals. Oh, brethren, this is the power of God at work in us. I mean, I'm saying wow already here. Because this is God at work. It's not us. 
trying to do things in our own energy. No, no, no. Friends, if, if this sounds like, no, it's too much, it's too much, uh, you know, you don't want to be part of it. Yes, then you are not a part of it to begin with. Because it simply shows that God, by his spirit, has not quickened you. He's not made you alive. God, by his spirit, is not living in you. That's all it means. But if the Lord has saved you, then your heart says, Amen to this. It celebrates on one hand and prays, Lord, help me to be even better. One song that we often sing that celebrates this is that little chorus, I am a new creation. No more in condemnation. Here in the grace of God I stand. My heart is overflowing. My love just keeps on growing. Eh? My love, not for your girlfriend or boyfriend, uh-uh. For the needy. My, my love just keeps on growing. Here, by the grace of God, I stand. It's not my own doing. And as the little chorus ends, a joy that knows no limit, a lightness in my spirit. In other words, this is where I find my fulfillment in giving and giving and giving again of my time, my talent, my energy, my money, just, just blessing the world in which I am, that God might be blessing the world through me. It's such a joy as I put my pillow, my, my head on my pillow at night. It's just a joy to live a life like this. I would want to live a thousand times over in this way. Being a blessing in God's world. But as we shall be singing in closing, it must be a prayer. And in the last stanza that we'll be singing in closing, we're praying, finish then thy new creation. Pure and spotless may we be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory. That's the Christian life. Going from one degree of glory unto another. Till in heaven we take our place. And when we get there and God gives us the crown for all that we have done, Charles Wesley says, we take that crown and cast it at the feet of Christ because we know who did the actual work through us. We know. Till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Brethren, I hope you'll be there. I hope that we drove you. Not through wishful thinking, but because your life is already being characterized by such good works. Amen.